Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. There we find these words of Solomon. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity. Its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place. All a man's labor is for his mouth and yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eyes see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and striving after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named. It is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of God. Please be seated. About 10 years ago, a group of atheists in the UK um, drew the attention of a number of headlines as they raised the equivalent of millions of dollars for the sake of a bus campaign, a campaign literally which they put advertisements for atheism on buses that went around UK streets. This entire campaign revolved around the slogan that said, there's probably no God Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. This was their grand slogan, and according to the the founders of the organization, they said it was an attempt to, to push back against this unnecessary level of anxiety that religious people had as a result of believing in the afterlife, believing in the existence of God. The assumption of the atheist was simply that if death is in fact the end of it all, which they assume it is, then the time to be happy is now. And as a result, they viewed their slogan as as humorous. They viewed it as an attempt to to try to encourage the mass public. And in fact, it took on a a great level of popularity and was relatively a great success. Yet despite its success, despite that concept that that life is generally happy, the fact is is that ultimately that slogan of the atheist is no more helpful than simply telling someone to turn that frown upside down in the midst of suffering. It's an ignorant attempt to ignore that which is clearly the truth. The truth being that that life isn't necessarily happy for a lot of people. In fact, many critics of the campaign spoke to this and said how really it's only the wealthy class that has this comfortable life who can honestly say with a straight face, hey, calm down, life's pretty good, enjoy it while you can. No, that, that encouragement is empty, it's worthless. And the concept of that denying an afterlife will somehow bring someone happiness is, is utter foolishness. For in fact, it's the complete opposite in times of trial and suffering. 
One would guess, and I would assume, of course, that that campaign would not have been started, say, in the middle of a pandemic, when suffering is hard to ignore. One could not say that saying with a straight face in the midst of their own pain, in the midst of their own sickness. No, in all reality, that statement offered in that campaign, that belief that happiness is just a matter of choice, is folly and is ignorant. Because the reality is, is that we live in a dark world. We live in a world that, that is filled with pain and suffering. And the last thing that humanity needs is for you with a smile on your face to tell them to just get over it and smile because life is short. Enjoy it while you still can. Now, if we're honest, we as humanity must acknowledge the fact that pain does exist and we need something more than this life. In fact, as Jesus teaches himself in Luke, it is only those who recognize that they are sick who are able to be addressed by the physician. So too, the same is true when it comes to humanity as a whole. We must acknowledge the reality of darkness. And it's only when we can grasp that darkness, appreciate that pain, that we can then step back and, and then appreciate the true glorious light of the gospel. As believers, I think we are equally uncomfortable speaking of the darkness and speaking of pain. But as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6 today, we are forced to do just that. From the chapter before us, Solomon presents perhaps the bleakest summary of humanity's existence. He presents to us a terribly depressing overview of life. It is uncomfortable. It was disappointing to read and realize this is what I'm going to be preaching on. But it is a necessary truth for us to explore. And so as we explore this text today, my hope is that we understand that that as a result of seeing this darkness, again, that we can appreciate the glory of Christ. And so in order to do that, we will be looking into this darkness, considering what life is apart from God. And in turn, might we better appreciate the cry for light that Solomon ultimately offers to us. Before we look into that darkness, though, let me go ahead and pray for us so that our minds might be prepared. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we come to you today, Lord, having already read the text we know we are coming into a very heavy section of Ecclesiastes. God, even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, we all would prefer to just simply force a smile on our face and pretend that everything's okay. God, that is our tendency as mankind. But all of us ultimately experience the pain that forces us to come face to face with the reality of suffering, God. And so might we not be hesitant to look honestly and openly at the darkness that Solomon discusses today? Might those of us who live a relatively comfortable life respond to this text with a proper sense of empathy for those whose lives are incredibly painful and difficult, God? Might those of us who live lives of pain and suffering at the moment ultimately find hope in the fact that, that your word is so truthful and honest in responding to the darkness and recognizing the darkness, God? And as a whole, regardless of where we stand this morning in our circumstances, might we, in response to this darkness, be all the more amazed by the glorious light that is offered entirely or purely by your Son, Jesus Christ, God. And as we appreciate that light, might we be proper reflections of the light to a world around us that is indeed dark. We love you, God, and we praise you. Remove all distractions from us, God. Cause us to, to understand this text today. Holy Spirit, be at work to conform all, all of us further into, the, further into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. It is in the Son's name that we pray all these things. Amen. The majority of our time this morning, 
will be spent in the first nine verses of Ecclesiastes 6. And as you can see on your bulletins, in these first nine verses, we see this look into the darkness that Solomon is observing in all of humanity. And in these first nine verses, really we see two basic curses, two dark realities that Solomon sees as a universal reality for every man, woman, and child. Those dark realities can be summed up in the the idea of dissatisfaction in life and dissatisfaction in death. Both, Solomon says, are inevitable. You cannot possibly avoid them. That first evil, that first darkness, the idea of dissatisfaction in life, is hinted at from the very beginning of our text in chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Again, follow along with me if you will. Here Solomon begins his observations. He says, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. As Solomon begins his discussion this morning, he begins with this unspoken assumption. An assumption that was understood in Solomon's day and I think is equally understood today. The assumption that is at work here is the assumption that says that success equals happiness. That if you can be successful in this life, you will be satisfied. You will be content. Solomon himself understands the the reality of success and the the highs and lows that success can bring us. And even when he speaks of this success in the first nine verses, you see he, he speaks of it in a variety of ways, ways to all of which we can relate to. For ultimately, as I think we see here, the picture of success in Solomon's day is, is not all that different from success in our day today. For consider the picture of this hypothetical successful man that Solomon paints for us in these opening verses. Again, verse 2, Solomon describes this man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that a soul lacks nothing. The first depictions or descriptions of success in Solomon's day revolves around money, revolves around financial wealth, financial security. This individual has amassed for himself great wealth, large bank account. This concept of success, obviously, is no different from for us today, we, we all assume that success in some way means financial success. We, we believe that is admirable. We believe that is something we would want. The same thing was true for Solomon. But what I think is so helpful to, to see the depth of Solomon's argument again is that he does not simply stop with financial success. And this is helpful for us. For I think a lot of times as Christians we're quick to say, hey, money will never satisfy. But, but we fail to appreciate that success has a number of idols that are attached For in addition to money, there in verse 2, Solomon also speaks of this man who has been given great honor. The successful person isn't just a person who has a big bank account. No, there's also a certain reputation that goes along with it. The picture of success here then is not just tied to his money, but, but tied to the way people view him. Solomon understood the success firsthand, for as many of you know, Solomon is the wisest person who've ever lived. And as such, there were people both from near and afar that would come out seeking Solomon's wisdom. They viewed him as a great man, not just because he's wealthy, but because he's so intelligent. Because his discernment, his wisdom goes far beyond the the wisdom of your average man or woman. And so Solomon understands success is tied to that reputation as well. This is a good thing. 
even beyond that money and respect, however, if you continue to read further down into the passage, you see other elements of success that are still very familiar to us today. For if you jump down to, say, verse 3, describing the same man, Solomon says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however they may be, he further discusses this man living up to 2,000 years. Solomon, of course, is speaking in a hyperbolic fashion, but we understand what he's saying. In Solomon's ancient Near Eastern culture, success was not just tied to a bank account, not just tied to reputation, but it was also tied to your family. In their culture, having lots of kids meant that clearly God's blessing is upon you. Having lots of kids meant you had a better opportunity to leave that legacy behind you. Your family name would be sustained. As many of you already know, to have your descendants cut off in the Old Testament was a great curse of God. And so to have a great number of descendants, well, that's God's blessing. Surely that must be success. Lastly, of course, we see this element of, of a long life, of prosperity, of health. For the successful man doesn't just live 90 years, 100 years, he lives 2,000 years. Wow, what a successful individual. And no doubt in the eyes of, of Solomon's peers, it would be assumed that a person who has money, a person who has a great reputation, a person who has a great number of kids, a person that lives a long life, surely they must be blessed. For Solomon himself writes of these blessings frequently. You read through the book of Proverbs and these are the things Solomon says are good and admirable. Things that are are desirable to us all and things that can be interpreted as a proper gift from God. In Solomon's day then, of course, all these things painted this clear picture of success. And as I mentioned already, the, the fact is we of course live in a world that in many ways is different from Solomon. Many ways. And yet, Overall, I think we can recognize that, that even as Christians, when we picture success, let's face it, we're thinking of the same stuff that Solomon designs here, don't we? And consider our American culture as a whole. We live in a society that idolizes the wealthy. There's an entire celebrity culture amongst us in which people are worshipped and become famous because they're, they're famous, They really haven't accomplished anything, but hey, they have a lot of money, so there must be something going for them. And so countless people watch television shows that just follow wealthy people walking through their daily lives. Countless television shows are made in which you can just look at wealthy people's homes, wealthy people's cars, wealthy people's schools, whatever it is. This is an entire part of the entertainment industry. And people love it. Because they view that wealth and they think, that is success, that's what I want, that is the American dream. We live in a culture that is obsessed with money and we view money as a picture of success. In a similar way, our culture worships reputation. We we see this in our current cancel culture for people are so obsessed with being loved by everyone that they're willing to do that anything they can do to be accepted, to be beloved. And so they will burn anything down they have to. They will reject anything in the past they have to. Whatever it takes to be well-liked, to be praised, they will do it. It's that obsession with reputation, that obsession to be well-loved, that that obsession to be respected. And we, of course, still see the same obsession with long life and health and prosperity. Our culture is not all that different from the ancient Near East in which Solomon lived. And, of course, we in the church can look at all these obsessions and these, these idols and we can easily say, ah, boy, isn't the world just terrible? I'm glad I don't worship wealthy people. I'm glad I'm not like all those terrible people out there that view success in such materialistic terms, but let's be honest. 
The same materialism comes into the church. We live in a greedy society. We cannot possibly think that we are left unstained by that greed. Within the church, there is still a tendency amongst many professing believers to to show preference to the wealthy. We assume if they are wealthy that that they must be doing something better than I am for God. We assume there's some, some, something special about them that God has honored. And so we still idolize the wealthy in the church so frequently. We idolize the family, and while there's probably not a lot of you that are stepping up to the plate to have a hundred kids, that's probably not the end goal of a lot of you. We have two kids, and quite frankly, I'm pretty tired, Right? Right? That's, not, that's not the same idol, but we still idolize this picture. We still have this image of success that is defined by a healthy marriage and healthy kids. And so within the church, we look at single people and we say, oh, how sad. They're missing something. They're not quite fully there yet. I need to set them up with someone because clearly if they want to be a successful Christian, well, they have to be married. And so we obsess over this and, and we make singleness look like it's some sort of curse. Because in our minds, success still is largely defined by family. We need that specific picture. We need to have this idealistic image, and we need it so that other people can see us as successful. Just as the world around us, we as Christians can idolize all these things. And all too often, I think, as as Christians, we have elevated the Protestant work ethic, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to the point where it's replaced the gospel in our daily lives. We think that's the end-all be-all. Work hard and you'll be successful. That's God's calling. We think that is what makes us different, but but in reality, so oftentimes, we are driven by this assumption that if we can just have that, if, if God just gives me the right spouse, if God just gives me another kid, if God just gives me another promotion, then I will be happy. Then I will be complete. Then I will find satisfaction. And so it's what we pray for. It's what we work towards. It's what we talk about day in and day out. Because like Solomon, and like so many others before us, we assume that if we can find success, that we will be happy. But of course, Solomon recognizes the complete opposite is actually true. For despite all the success that this imaginary person has in Ecclesiastes 6, we see he is far from satisfied. Again, look with me at at verse 2. He says, A man whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them. They can't enjoy it. In a similar way, jumping down to verses 7 through 9, speaking to that dissatisfaction of life. Solomon says, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. What advantage does the wise man have over the fool? What advantage does the poor man have knowing how to walk before the living? What the eye see is better than what the soul desires. This too is futility and a striving after the wind. Regardless of how much success you might have, regardless of how much food you might consume, the appetite will still come back immediately. Doesn't matter how successful you are, it will never be enough. And if your hope is to find happiness and contentment in these material possessions, you will be driven mad. And Solomon says here, this is by no accident. This madness is by design. For he says in the context of this this successful man, God himself withholds the satisfaction. God prevents this man of success from finding complete contentment in his wealth. 
In a similar way, in verses 7 through 9, it is by design that, that the appetite comes back. It's by design that you and I cannot be satisfied by material things. We cannot be satisfied by marriage. We cannot be satisfied by our job. We cannot be satisfied by reputation. We were designed to need something far greater than that. And as Christians, as we'll see here in a moment, there is a beauty to that struggle then. But if you're an unbeliever, if you're viewing life purely in terms of of life under the sun, this is a great evil, as Solomon himself says. For Solomon looks out of all humanity and he sees a bunch of mice trapped in a closed-off maze, desperately searching for the end, desperately seeking out that satisfaction without realizing the fact that their satisfaction is a fantasy. This is so much of the tragedy of what we see around us in the world today. For we see humanity desperate, desperate to find happiness, willing to do anything that can be done, hoping that that next step will bring them satisfaction. And of course we say, oh, it's so foolish, they're not going to find it. But they don't know that. They desperately want to find happiness. They desperately want to find satisfaction. But just as Solomon observes in Ecclesiastes 6, so too we observe today, it is all fleeting. It's a pursuit after the wind. And if we live life purely by terms of trying to seek out success, we will always be dissatisfied, regardless of the prizes that we win. And Solomon says, this is evil. This is tragic. This is a dark reality. A sad statement of life, and yet... It doesn't quite capture the darkness fully that Solomon describes here. For, for tragically, Solomon says, this dissatisfaction, this, this madness, does not end when someone just dies, does it? Now again, follow back with me in verses 3 through 6. As he describes this man's life as well as this man's end. Beginning in verse 3, he says, If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, however many they may be, But his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial. Then I say, better the miscarriage than he. As if the dissatisfaction in the midst of success, the dissatisfaction in the midst of of reputation and wealth isn't enough, Solomon says it's all capped off by what? By an improper burial. And to many of us today, that, that language might not carry with it much weight, but, but in this culture, in this Old Testament culture, that language of an improper burial speaks of shame that follows you into the grave. It represents that imagery that says that restlessness that marked you in life has followed you into death. And so even in death, there is no rest. There is no satisfaction When you read throughout the Old Testament, you see this language of improper burials. And that language oftentimes speaks of of a curse that God has placed upon sinful man. One clear example of this is found back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God is, is speaking of the covenant that he has made with his people. And he's gone through a long list of promises that come with, with their obedience. If they will obey, in essence, they will enjoy great blessing. But, as many of you know who have read through covenant language of books like Deuteronomy, with disobedience there will also be curses and God's wrath. You see one picture of God's wrath described here in Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 
25. There God says, The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. You will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky, to the beast of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. As if the curse of death was not enough. God says, no, there's something more than that. Even after you die, there will be no burial. There will be no opportunity for you to join your forefathers. You will rot in the fields, and there will be no one left to mourn, no one left to tell your story. To be denied a proper burial, again, speaks to a curse of God, and it speaks to a true tragedy of human existence. Solomon does not tell us why the person in Ecclesiastes 6 is denied the proper burial, but he does say this is prevalent. And what we can take from this is is Solomon views this as the norm. Regardless of how a person's life ends, well, ultimately, they're clearly cursed. There's no hope. There's no glory awaiting us. There's only darkness. We as believers today, or we as, as people today, perhaps have a hard time understanding just this restlessness or understanding the picture that's being painted here. But, but to a certain extent, I think this, this improper burial has, has come back into our consciences because of the coronavirus pandemic in which we're living. For one of the most tragic elements of the virus, as many of you are aware, is, is not simply that life is taken, although that is horrific, but it's the fact that after that life is taken, because people are fearful of the spread of the disease, what has been denied to countless families? Funerals, proper burial. Death is always hard for everyone, but at least in in normal circumstances, the the dead can be honored. The loved ones gather together, and it is sad and it is difficult, but they can gather together and they can can speak positive things about their lost one. They can watch them as they're lowered into the grave, and, and there's a certain beauty to that. There's a certain comfort that comes in the act of grief and mourning. It is a necessary part but the virus takes that away from us. It takes away a proper burial. And so people's loved ones are buried anonymously. They're, they're scurried away. And people are denied the opportunity to grieve. People are denied the opportunity to mourn properly. And in this picture, I think we see a modern day example of, of this curse of which Solomon speaks. This curse that follows us from the moment we're born all the way to the moment we are put under the dirt. In response to this great dissatisfaction, Solomon comes to the darkest, bleakest conclusion I could possibly imagine. For at the end of it all, Solomon does not say, so I guess it's good to just put a smile on your face and enjoy life while you can. No, He says, better the miscarriage than he. For it, that is the miscarried child, comes in futility, goes into obscurity. Its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun. It never knows anything. And it is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice over, he does not enjoy good things. Do not all go to one place. When praying against the enemies of God in imprecatory psalms, David prays for this sort of ending. David prays that their children might not even see the light of day. Yet here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon prays it for all of us. 
not just enemies that should, that should suffer this, it's, it's everyone. Because quite frankly, life is terrible. So better to just end it now, never see any of that dissatisfaction in life, and just suffer in ignorance and in darkness. This is a horrifically depressing conclusion, is it not? Yet Solomon is not alone in the conclusion. For throughout world history, you see a variety of philosophers saying the same thing. Philosophers who, who observe the basic truth of suffering and their conclusion is very similar. You, you hear it in the, the famous words of Sophocles who said, to have never been born may be the greatest boon of all. Maybe the greatest benefit, the greatest gift. That's what we should want. Frederick Nietzsche, the same uh, type of philosopher in Germany, says the same sort of thing in his work, Birth of Tragedy. That is the best gift. That is the thing we could hope for the most, to avoid life altogether. Oftentimes we can read words like this from, from Solomon. We can hear Sophocles quoted. We can hear these people and we just think, oh, what a bunch of Debbie Downers. How terrible they would think that way. But you know what? They're right. They're right. If there is no afterlife, then this world is terrible. It's awful. So many of us can live our lives in comfort, and so it's, it's hard for us to understand this, but, but a simple look around the world in any given period of history, and you see life is marked by, by endless suffering. Horrific, horrific wickedness all around us. And even in our own lives today, let's face it, some of us are facing tremendous trials. And in the midst of that darkness, if we're honest, when we take our eyes off of Christ, the only reasonable conclusion is just end it now. When we lived in Colorado, towards the end of my time there, a horrific trend that started coming up on the scene was the trend of the suicide rates with teenagers. It's horrific. Uh, there were somewhere around seven high school kids that, that committed suicide in the last year we were there. In two schools. And the common story that was coming from many of our kids was a story that went along the lines of something like this. Well, so-and-so found out they didn't get accepted into the Air Force Academy, so and that was it. So they went ahead and killed themselves. And what was so horrific was not just the fact that it was suicide, that is horrific. It was the fact that I could hear teenagers say it so matter-of-factly. For they would say, well, you know, their, their dream didn't come true, so. And what is so tragic is when people adopt this, this belief system that says all we have is this life, well, then life really does become meaningless quite quickly. And we can talk all we want about the, the beauties that can be experienced, the joy that can be experienced, but you remove God from the picture and it all falls apart very, very quickly. And all we are left with is the same tragic view of Solomon that tells us that if there's no satisfaction under the sun, and if death really is the final stop, then there is no hope. This is a truth that is not encouraging to dwell on, but it's one that as believers, we have to be willing to look directly in the face. For we so oftentimes are quick to excuse the pain of the world around us and pretend that they should just get over it without realizing the level of sadness that is all around them without appreciating the level of pain that people are suffering through. We as believers should more so than anyone else appreciate 
the depth of suffering. And we of all people then should appreciate the pain and anguish that comes in the voice of Solomon in verses 10 through 12 after having made his observation. For here in verses 10 through 12, which, which is the midpoint for all of Ecclesiastes, Solomon offers yet another cry for, for meaning. For there he says, whatever exists has already been named. It is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? The cry that is offered here by Solomon is the cry of all finite humanity. It is the cry of anyone who does not yet see God. For Solomon understands that things are not just difficult, things are hopeless, and there's nothing he can do about it. I mean, think of yourself in terms of Solomon's shoes, right? Here is the wisest man who's ever lived. And even he looks at the world around him and he says, can't do anything about it. He speaks of the futility of crying out to some, someone that is mightier than he. Most commentators say this is a, an allusion to God, crying out for God for, for a reason, for an explanation. But Solomon says, no, that's not going to do anything. You can't force God to do anything. He's not going to explain it to you. So Solomon cries out, recognizing that things are difficult, recognizing that things cannot be changed, and recognizing ultimately that we are but shadows. We are but a vapor. And who, and this is key then, who then can possibly tell us what, what, what there is after we're, go, we're gone? Who can possibly answer this question of meaning? Who can possibly shine some light in the midst of this pitch darkness in which all of humanity lives? Again, the cry of Solomon is a universal cry of humanity. It's the cry of anyone who faces suffering and does not understand the meaning in it. It's the cry of anyone who finds themselves in the midst of a dark struggle and feels as if there can be no light found. And yet in this cry, there is a brief word of instruction that is so vital to understand. For while the unbeliever hears in this cry a cry of desperation, a cry of hopelessness, a cry that lacks all meaning, in the believer's worldview, this, an- this question is not spoken into the darkness. Now to the believer, there's an understanding this question is, is ultimately answered. And what we must appreciate as believers is that in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of that cry that is the heart of every unbeliever, there is an answer from the infinite. For there is someone that can tell us what comes, a- after, uh, what comes after we're gone. There is someone that can tell us exactly what this darkness means. There is someone who can tell us exactly where we are headed and shine a light on that map. That individual, of course, is God himself. For where man is finite, where man's understanding runs out, God is sovereign, he is all-knowing. And so just as he declares in passages like Isaiah 46, it is he who declares everything from the beginning. His will is always perfectly performed. And so while we cry out in darkness looking for light, God says, here, here's my plan. Here's what you can trust. 
even more incredibly, even more beautifully, we have the same answer given to us, not just simply in these vague revelations in the Old Testament, but but in the clear words of Jesus Christ. For in response to this cry in the midst of darkness, in response to this cry that asks what will come after us, we hear these words of John 14, verse 1. When in response to the darkness, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have not have told you? For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way of where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know what you're, where you're going. How, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. The message of Scripture, the message of Christ, is the answer to Ecclesiastes 6. It's the answer to this cry of desperation. Because even in the midst of, of the disciples' pursuit of success, the disciples' pursuit of a reputation, the, deci- the disciples' pursuit of, of worldly success, Jesus is repeatedly telling them, no, that's not the point. Success is not found in what other people think of you. Success is not found in the money you have. Success is found when, when I call you one of my own. And success is ultimately found not in this life, but in the life to come. And even if you cannot see it now, as the disciples could not, and as we cannot clearly see it now, Jesus says, it's there. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come back and I will deliver you. So in answer to the question of who can tell us what comes next, the answer is Jesus tells us. And Jesus says, if you simply come through me, I will bring you to that glorious kingdom of light. I will come back for you. I will bring you home. There is such a precious nature to these promises of Christ. And I think so oftentimes we who are believers belittle these promises of Christ and and we can so quickly get caught up in the images of success and, and contentment of this world, we so quickly buy into the dreams that the world sells us. And as we do so, we fail to appreciate the darkness of it all. We fail to appreciate the folly that is so clearly exposed by Solomon. As believers, we must be so careful to not give into that false dream. We must be so careful not to give into this, this false belief that says, don't worry, life isn't that hard, just choose to be happy. No, we must be like Christ who weeps over the suffering around him, for he understands just how dark it is. We must be like Christ who looks out upon the masses who are like, chick- who are like chickens without a hen, who are, who, are fall- who are sheep without a shepherd, who are so desperate for guidance and yet they are wandering and lost. We must be quick to acknowledge that. And we must be reminded of the fact that this world is in fact a dark place. It's only when we understand that darkness that we understand why the word of Christ is so precious and so sweet and so beautiful. And so, believers, as we hear these words of Solomon, let us be quick to acknowledge the truth that he speaks here. 
Let us be quick to to acknowledge the suffering of the world around us. Uh, Call darkness what it is. Recognize that this is a difficult place. But let us also then be quick to shine a light into the midst of that suffering. As we conclude our time this morning then for, for unbelievers, I do not know where you are in life right now. I don't know what suffering you face. I don't know what comfort you are enjoying. But I do know that ultimately the weight of this life will crush you. You will not be satisfied. And in the end, you will die and go to hell. There is no rest for the lost. There is only greater restlessness that lies before you. But praise be to God for the fact that it does not have to be this way. For God gives you light and he tells you exactly how to find satisfaction. That satisfaction is only found in repenting of your sin and placing your trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. And so I ask you, unbeliever, do that this morning. Cry out to God as Solomon does, but please understand that the cry does not end in desperation. It ends in life if it is given to Jesus Christ. If you have any questions about that, please ask me afterwards. For my fellow believers, let us again be quick to acknowledge the darkness that's all around us. There is so much pain in this world and we are not helping anyone by faking a smile every day and pretending like everything is great. It's dishonest and it helps no one. Let us acknowledge the darkness that's around us. Let us speak to that suffering. But let us not be so overcome by that darkness and suffering that we ourselves mourn as those who mourn without hope. As we look upon the darkness, might we also look quickly to the light of Jesus Christ. And as we look to the beautiful light of Christ and remember that he has given us hope, that he has given us a home, that he has given us that light, might we then reflect that light to the world around us. Not simply call people to work harder or be smarter or do more, but call on people to fix their eyes on Christ as well, reminding them that satisfaction can be found in him and him alone. As we consider that calling here in a moment, we'll have the opportunity to to partake in communion. But before we take part in that, let me close this in prayer and we'll talk about what's next. Father in heaven again, the words of Ecclesiastes 6 are so weighty, God. And all of us would love to, to at least in passing, try to live this naive life that says, life is pretty good, let's just enjoy all we can. God, it's tempting to try to ignore suffering that is all around us. It's, it's tempting to try to ignore that darkness, God, but it is inescapable. And so, God, might we not be scared by the words of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes 6. Rather, might we echo his same sentimentality, the sentiments at least when it comes to the reality of pain. In turn, Lord, might we do that which Solomon speaks of elsewhere? Might we mourn with those who mourn? Might we weep with those who weep, God? But as we acknowledge that pain, Lord, might we also again reflect the light of Jesus Christ. And as people cry out in desperation, who can possibly save us from this pain? Might we be quick to point everyone to the physician they so desperately need? For my brothers and sisters in Christ, God, I pray that we all might find comfort in this, God. God, we are not saved from pain. God, you do not take that pain away from us when we are Christians, you do not remove death from us, God, but at the same time, you set us in a new story. And you remind us that that pain is not meaningless and that the grave is not the end. And so for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in pain this morning, God, comfort them. Might they see the light of Jesus. Might they see the beauty of the gospel. 
And might we all with one voice be able to sing of the glorious light that Jesus Christ has brought us, God. Bless this time we have now to celebrate communion as we're reminded of that light, as we're reminded of the gift we've been given. And as we do so, Lord, might we be all the more eager to go out in the world and shine the light in which you've placed us, God. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray these things, amen.